Hey, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab your Bible and open it to the book of Ephesians. Uh, today we are going to be in Ephesians, and I'm a little bit nervous today, uh, not necessarily because of you, but I'm nervous a little bit because of the weight of the text today and what I am going to be unfolding and trying to do my best to teach. I'm going to spend the next two weeks walking through the very end of Ephesians chapter 6 in our series called Walls Fall Down. Somebody say, Walls Fall Down. And we're wrapping up our series, walking through the book of Ephesians. And so I'm, uh, I have a, a, just a, a level of, um, I guess, healthy and holy fear and intrepidation as I try to lead you today and lead you and lead our church in the next couple weeks um, as we talk specifically about spiritual warfare. This morning, um, as I was preparing and getting ready and I was thinking about today's sermon, God bless you. Thinking about today's sermon and what we would be navigating through and walking through and what we'd be facing today and over the next couple weeks, I felt like I had this thought that I believe is from the Lord, and it was this, that um, I'm convinced that perpetual and um, the perpetual and abiding state of our church will be one of spiritual warfare, which means uh, for the foreseeable future, until Jesus comes back, we are going to be facing significant spiritual warfare as a church for a variety of different reasons that I won't go into, but specifically because of our vision and because uh, the enemy doesn't want to see darkness pushed back in our city. But I believe that this is going to be a topic that we are going to have to understand and know and to walk in faithfully in order to accomplish the vision that God is calling us to. Do I have a witness in the room? Amen. You know, there's a famous uh, Chinese commander who wrote a book called The Art of War. It is the preeminent book on wartime strategy and wartime thought. His name is Sun Tzu. He wrote this book, The Art of War, and I found an interesting quote this week that I want to share with you about war and what you must know about your enemy. He says this, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of 100 battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. And so my hope for today as we dig into spiritual warfare and what this looks like as believers and as Christians and as a church, I want us to understand ourselves and who we are in Christ and what God declares over us. But then as well, we need to understand the enemy. Not an unhealthy fascination with the enemy, but an understanding of the schemes of our enemy so that we know how to appropriately fight in the war in which we are fighting. The title of my sermon is The War We Wage. The War We Wage. And so what Paul does, I love this, and he says this in verse 10 that I'm going to jump into in a second. He says, finally. That doesn't mean that his hand is hurting and he's trying in his prison cell to put down the pen because his writing and his hand is hurting. He says, finally, this is a way for him to get to the end of what he's trying to get to. This is the way that he puts an exclamation on the book of Ephesians, on the letter to these Christians in Ephesus. And he says, finally, which means this is how he's going to wrap it up. This is how he's going to sum it all up. He's been walking through this entire letter, which I have advocated for, that the goal of the book and the purpose of the book is that the gospel, through Jesus Christ, the gospel creates unity and reconciliation, vertically and horizontally. 
and this is not only the theme of Ephesians, but this is a significant theme throughout the entire Bible, that what God is trying to do in the world is create unity and reconciliation. That is part of God's purpose in the world. And this is God's hope throughout the entire scriptures. And God is bringing through you and me and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's bringing his kingdom here and now through the gospel. And he is creating, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, a new kind of humanity. He's recreating what was initially lost in the Garden of Eden. And if you would go all the way back to the first couple chapters of the Bible, you would see that our first parents, Adam and Eve in the Garden Um, Things went south in the garden because of Satan, because of the serpent, because of the great foe who brought division into the world. In the garden, we see the unraveling of the fabric of the relationship between God and man, as well as the relationship between man and mankind. And what we've seen in Ephesians is how the gospel, the only hope for the world, the gospel in the crucified flesh of Jesus Christ tears down those walls and brings us back into a healthy relationship with God and healthy relationship with one another. And Paul understands that this feat, this mission, this agenda of God is such a strong goal and is such a hard challenge for us that we would need unity together, we would need strength together. And so he puts an exclamation mark on the end of everything that he has said so far, saying finally, and this is what he is trying to advocate for us today, and which we will see today and next Sunday. So with that being said, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul would say in Ephesians 6, verse 10, finally... Be strong in the Lord. Somebody say, be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is how he concludes. This is how he wraps it up. After everything that he said, here's here's what you're going to need. You're going to need strength to do this. The only way that you're going to be able to accomplish What I'm saying and what I'm calling to you to and what God is calling you to is if you have some kind of strength, not just your own strength, actually a strength that is greater than your strength, a supernatural strength. That is the only way that this works. By the way, the only way the church works is through this kind of strength. The only way this happens is if we find this kind of supernatural strength. I'll say it this way. Some of y'all are like, he is amped today. Yes, I am amped today. Say it this way. The task of gospel reconciliation can only be accomplished by being strong in the Lord. It's the only way. The task of gospel reconciliation, seeing the gospel press darkness back, move forward into enemy territory, reclaim what has been lost, reunite people with God, recreate a new community of faith called the church. The only way that this can be accomplished is by being strong in the Lord. I personally faced this specifically um, in our history as a church. Significant difficulties anytime you try to plant a church. For those of you who are new, we planted this church. This was a new church back in the fall of 2014. A few dozen crazy people decided that they would lock arms together and join in a new gospel work and a new ministry called the Bridge Church, which wasn't my name suggestion, by the way, but is a great name. 
that we would join together in this task to see the gospel move forward in our city and to see darkness pushed back. And church planning is incredibly difficult. By God's grace, God gave us a tremendous amount of success, not just in the area of numbers, but in the area of, of health and, and unity and, and, and moving forward together. We have embarked on one of the hardest things I believe any church, specifically in America, America can ever embark on, and that is trying to become a multi-ethnic church. I'll push into this a little bit later in some specific examples, but this has been one of the hardest things that I've ever tried to do personally in ministry. Church planting was hard. Trying to become a multi-ethnic church is ten times harder. Because the enemy doesn't want what's happening here. The enemy hates us. Hates us. The enemy hates every single person in this room right now. He doesn't want to see any kind of success happen in here. And it's incredibly challenging. And, and I will say today that the only way to do it is if you're strong. And not your own strength because you don't have the strength. But if you have some kind of supernatural strength, which is this strength from the Lord. Notice the command that Paul gives is to be strong, but notice the source. He says, not in you, be strong in the Lord. And I believe that there is a correlation uh, between um, your lack of strength and then God's strength in you. I, I don't think that God is trying to say, if you would just be strong enough, then I could be strong with you. I actually think it's the opposite. When you look at scripture, you see people, Christians, followers of Jesus, getting to the end of themselves, emptying themselves, being completely out of strength and being weak, and then God brings the strength that we need. There's a specific story in 2 Corinthians 12 where the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul who's the chief church planter of the first century and is planting churches all over the Greco-Roman world, and he's doing this day in and day, uh, day, in, day and night, I mean all the time, uh, weeks and weeks and months and months at end trying to see this happen specifically encounters some spiritual warfare in his life and some things that he just can't get rid of that are outside attacks. And he is at the end, he is at the bottom, he is completely out of strength, and then he writes this in 2 Corinthians 12, 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Thank you for that last one, Paul. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is how Jesus always messes it up. Do you know that Jesus is always turning things on, on, on his head? Jesus is always like, that's what you thought? That's not how it works. This is how it works. I mean, service, leadership, forgiveness, it doesn't matter whatever it is. The kingdom, it's an upside-down kingdom. You think you got it figured out, and then Jesus said, actually, this is how it works. You watched your people or you watched your friends in culture or you watched TV. You saw this in culture. Maybe this is how they do it in your country. We do it in a, di a different kind of way in our country called the kingdom of God. It doesn't work that way. It's actually when you're weak, then are you strong in God. It's actually when you recognize that you don't have the strength necessary that you are able to embody the kind of strength that God provides. I'll say it this way. You're going to love this one. You should put it on a T-shirt. The path to God-given strength is man-made weakness. Our, el our elders, we, we wrestle through this all the time. I mean, we talk about our own struggles and we talk about our own lives. Every now and then, we have a little bit of a pity party. Can I just be honest with y'all? Every now and then, we get into a pity party and we're like, man, this is happening, this is happening. Our physical illnesses, 
spiritual attacks, division, whatever it is. We get, sometimes we um, have a little bit of a pity party, and then usually someone in the group who is the most spiritual at the moment says, well, we should be content in our weaknesses because that's actually when God is making us strong. Like, did you have to say that? I mean, right, did you have to? Notice I turned this direction rather than, rather than this direction. But we, we recognize that, that in our weaknesses, God is actually giving us strength. Because if you accomplish things in your own strength, you get the glory. But if you accomplish things in your weakness, then God gets the glory. And the path to God-given strength is man-made weakness, which means you just got to abide in Christ. He's the vine. We are the branches. True growth and strength doesn't come, doesn't flow from the branch inward to the vine. True strength and growth flows outward from the vine to the branches. And that's where your strength comes from. So he says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Then he says this in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. He's using an analogy. He's using wartime language. He's going to be walking through, which we'll see next week, actual parts of God's armor in our lives. Put on the whole armor of God, this metaphor, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We'll unpack the devil and we'll unpack his schemes in a minute. Verse 12. For, here's the reason why, because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, which means your enemy isn't what you can see and touch. There is a different enemy, but against the rulers, he's talking about spiritual rulers, against the authorities, he's talking about spiritual authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So here's what I would like to do. He mentions the devil. He mentions spiritual warfare. I want to take us on a little bit of a journey for a few minutes on uh, a biblical understanding of who Satan is, who our enemy is, um, what his purpose is, what he can do, what he cannot do, and then how we should think about that and how we should address that. And then I'll jump back into verse 13 if I have time and try to land the plane there. C.S. Lewis, he would say this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which we uh, can face uh, about the devil, about our enemy Satan. One is to disbelieve in their existence altogether or in Satan's existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Two ditches. It seems like everything in the Christian life, there are two ditches. On one side, the ditch is to act like the enemy doesn't exist. This is America 101. We are enlightened. This is the 21st century. I can't believe that you would be so primitive to think that there is actually Satan, actually a devil, actually demons. You're crazy people. You're crazy people. Yes, we're crazy people. All right, we'll just go ahead and, and own it. That's one ditch over here that says it doesn't exist. The other ditch over here is to be so focused and fascinated on it and have an unhealthy, excessive view of it that it consumes you. And everything that happens in your life is because of Satan. Someone snags that parking place in Walmart right before you got there. That Satan is against me. He's a liar. Maybe. Maybe. There, there's, a healthy, there's a healthy balance. There's a healthy medium. Let's walk through a few titles of Satan and who Satan is and what the scriptures refer to his name and his titles. There's 21 of them that I can find. Number one, Abaddon, which means a destroyer, Revelation 9-11. Number two, he's called the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Number three, he's called the accuser. By the way, if you're trying to write these down, we're going to post a blog today with all of this and all the scriptures on it today. The accuser, Revelation 12.10. Number four, the great dragon, Revelation 12.9. The adversary, 1 Peter 5.8. 
the lawless one, 2 Thessalonians 2.18. Apollyon, or another name for a destroyer, Revelation 9.11. He's called a liar in John 8.44. He's called Beelzebub in Matthew 12.24. He's called the tempter, 1 Thessalonians 3.5. He's called Belial, 2 Corinthians 6.15. He's called a murderer in John 8.44. Number 13, he's the deceiver in Revelation 12.9. He's the prince of the power of the air in our own book, Ephesians 2, verse 2. He's the devil, Luke 4.13. He's the ruler of this world, John 12.31. He's the enemy, Matthew 13.28 and 39. He's Satan, Acts 26 and 18. The evil one, Matthew 13.28 and 39. Serpent, Revelation 12.9. And 21, father of lies, John 8.44. So who is Satan? Who, who is this person, this thing called Satan? Well, first of all, we need to understand that Satan is actually an angel. Satan was created by God. He was created by God as an angel, and then Satan, in his rebellion against God, fell away from relationship with God because of his rebellion. Now, we need to get, set the record straight that Satan is not equal with God. Satan is not equal with God. That means he does not share God's attributes. He is not omnipresent. Unlike God, Satan doesn't have the ability to be in all places at all times. Yes, he is a spirit being and he operates in the spiritual realm, but he is not omnipresent. As well, he is not omniscient. He doesn't have the mind of God. He doesn't know uh, everything that God knows. Is he smart? Yes, he's unbelievably smart. He's been around for a long time. And he has learned a lot about us. He's learned a lot about this world, but he's not omniscient. He doesn't have all knowledge. As well, he's not all-powerful. He doesn't have power to do anything that he wants to do like God does. God can do anything he wants to do anytime he wants to do. He's sovereign, and he is all-powerful. Satan does not. He is limited in his power, and he's limited in his dominion. But we need to recognize that though he is not God and though he is not like God, Satan is unbelievably crafty. He's unbelievably crafty. He's unbelievably smart. He has been around since before the beginning of the world which means he has thousands of years of experience with humans and their folly. One of the things that we just need to say up front, uh, if you're prideful about spiritual warfare, you've already missed the mark. If you're prideful and think that you've got it all figured out and think that you have it, I mean, every solution, and that you can just stand up and just speak whatever you want to speak and it happens no matter what, and think that you can, like, carry that and tell other people about that and be prideful, you, you've, already, you've already missed Satan just accomplished what he was trying to accomplish in you, which was the fall of our first parents' pride. It doesn't work that way. What, what is Satan's purpose? What is his purpose? I'll walk through a couple passages for you. He rules and reigns as the prince and the power of this present world. Acts 26, verses 16 and 18 says this. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. And then he says this, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Here's the reality is that Satan actually has power in the world. He's the prince in the power of the air, which means the earth is his playground. This is where his domain is. This is where he operates. And he has a significant level of power. And I notice what Notice what he says in this passage, the Luke, the author of Acts. He says that when you become a Christian, you, you turn from darkness to light. 
And then he gives us an example of that. He says, from the power of Satan to God. That's what happens when you become a Christian. When you become a Christian, you don't just get a little more spiritual. When you become a Christian, you are transferred from the power of Satan to the power of God. Which means before you know Jesus, before you are a Christian, you are under the domain and the power of Satan, our enemy. And it's not until Jesus' blood is washed over you and forgiven you of your sins and you are entered into a holy relationship with God and his spirit comes and resides in you that you are now under the power of God and the domain of God. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9 would say this about our enemy. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone, someone to devour. He's trying to devour you today. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I think you could probably sum it up in about four categories. What, what, what's the purpose of Satan, our enemy? Number one, deceit. He deceives. He's the ultimate deceiver. It's what he did in Genesis chapter 3, and that's what he's continuing to do every day. Uh, he deceives. Number two, he dominates. He dominates. He actually dominates over people and places and things. His power is over things. He likes to dominate. He likes to oppress. He likes to influence. He likes to control. He likes to enslave. He's a dominator. He's a devourer. Number three, he devours. He devours families. He devours relationships. He devours churches. He devours societies. He devours cities. He's a devourer. He, he wants to take control. Like a lion, he wants to come in and kill. He devours. Number four, he destroys. He just destroys. Whatever's meant for God, whatever's meant for good, whatever's tried to tee up a healthy marriage, a healthy relationship, a healthy family, a healthy business, a healthy career, a healthy church, he just wants to destroy all of that. That's what he's up to. That's his purpose. He's the destroyer. Now let's look specifically at the ministry of Jesus. In what ways is Satan involved in and against the ministry of Jesus? Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says this. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. This is at the onset of his ministry. And was led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Jesus is about to embark on his ministry, his earthly ministry. He's getting ready to inaugurate his kingdom. And he's getting ready to call a few disciples to follow him. And to be a part of his mission and to be a part of his ministry. And what we see, the devil, Satan himself, comes and attacks and tempts and comes and tries to deceive, comes and tries to thwart the ministry and the mission of Jesus from day one. He's moving, he's working, he's trying to get a foothold, he's trying to get a little deceit in, he's trying to have a conversation, he's trying to thwart the ministry of Jesus. We see this in John 13, 21 through 27 as well. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, speaking to his disciples. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to, to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, speaking of Judas. 
Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Jesus is getting ready to head to the cross. He's with his disciples. This is the last supper. These are the final hours before he would, grow, he would go to his impending crucifixion. And there we see in the room, fighting and working, is the devil, Satan himself. He gets a foothold in Judas, actually enters Judas. The spirit enters him to be used as a pawn for his play in the game that he is trying to work. Satan against the ministry of Jesus. So what can Satan do? What can he do in the world? What, what kinds of things does he do? Well, the first thing um, I want to show you is that he can actually physically uh, hinder uh, people. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18 says this, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person and not in heart, this is Paul speaking, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see, uh, to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. This is in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, planting churches, going from city to city to city. He actually can't get to Rome because there is an enemy, Satan, who has prevented him physically from getting there. Every time, every time he pointed to walk in a direction towards Rome, the, the enemy's thwarting him, physically hindering him from being able to go in that direction. He has to redirect. The opposition is so strong, Paul redirects to other areas. Physically hinders. As well, he can uh, cause physical illnesses. 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. This is a physical, most likely, theologians debate and commentators debate on this, most likely this is a physical ailment. This is pain that Paul is experiencing. It actually says in a messenger, same word for angel, messenger, an angel, which would be a demon of Satan, is sent to Paul to actually cause a physical harm and to harass him in his own life. Not only does he cause a physical harassment or physical illnesses, as well, he's the tempter. He can tempt. 1 Corinthians 7, 5. It says, do not deprive one another, this is speaking specifically of a marriage relationship, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Which means even in the marriage relationship, we see this the first act of Satan in the garden is to disrupt a marriage relationship. And here Paul says, Hey, be real, real cautious in your marriage relationship about what you're doing and what you're not doing. Satan is trying to sneak in. Satan's trying to get in there. He's trying to tempt. He's trying to thwart the marriage. He's trying to divide the marriage. He's trying to divorce the marriage or cause the marriage to end in divorce. That's what he's trying to do. He, he, he loves that. They, I mean, they high-five one another every time a marriage ends in that way. They love it. One more success. One more win. One more score on the scoreboard. He loves it. He's the great tempter. Not only is he a tempter, but he, he, he's a murderer and, and liar. John 8, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What can he do? He, he, breeds, he breeds lies. He, he breeds, uh, it says he was a murderer from the beginning which would lead us to believe that Satan actually has a hand in murder. Which is 
quite alarming if you think about it. That Satan actually is involved sometimes in the process of people losing their lives, murdering. He's involved. Not only does that, he can influence the heart. Acts 5, 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie through the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Peter just goes, goes ahead and acknowledges it. He names it. Peter receives this from the Lord and he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? There's a level of influence that Satan had specifically here on Ananias. And in this moment, Satan is involved and causes and leads Ananias to lie to the Holy Spirit, in which if you would read the context and the rest of the passage, would actually end Ananias' very life. Matthew 6, through 23 says this, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is a famous passage with Jesus and Peter. Peter is rebuking Jesus, saying, far be it from you, Lord, uh, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In Peter's very denial and rejection of what Jesus was trying to accomplish and what Jesus was trying to say, Jesus acknowledges um, that Peter is being influenced in this moment by Satan. And that his mind, his mind is set on the things of man rather than on the things of God. Now, some of you may be like, well, Ethan, that kind of happened in the Bible, but, you know, it doesn't really happen uh, today. Let me give you a few stories of spiritual warfare that I think will kind of help enlighten us on this process. I actually reached out to our prayer team this week and asked asked for uh, some stories on on this, Um, stories from my life, stories from our church and others as well. Um, I would hear this as a, as a young child kind of growing up, growing up in the church, that I would have friends that would do international uh, ministry, and uh, specifically in places in, in Africa, and, and then even, even my experience in places like Haiti, uh, witchcraft, uh, a lot of demon influence, spirit influence. Um, I, would hear, I would hear of these things, and I always thought that it was something that happened like internationally far away. My, my, my friend, my best man in my wedding one time told me the story of he was in a kind of a remote village in Africa and he was doing ministry with a missionary who was there and actually went to a little cafe that was in the village and where they were uh, ministering from and the missionary told him, he said, well, once they entered, he said, don't look across the room, there is a woman over there who's actually a witch doctor, she's demon possessed and she would want nothing more than to get our attention and to engage with us in some kind of fight or altercation. As hard as it is, my friend uh, this tried his best not to look up over across uh, the room at this particular uh, person. Uh, by the end of the time that they were there before they left, this woman would begin to yell at the top of her lungs loudly, pull a knife, run across the restaurant as fast as she could, coming to actually do harm to them. The missionary would actually stand in the gap, stand in front of them, and begin to declare truths about who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing in that moment. She drops the knife, falls down on the floor, and runs out of the room, runs out of the cafe. And for, for me, I was like, that's a crazy story. I'm glad that doesn't happen here. 
then, then we planted a church. It seems like anytime there is a new work or a new ministry, specifically a new gospel ministry or new work, there is significant opposition and attack to that. I could go through several different stories and situations in which I've been in uh, specifically. Uh, one of the most, that is the most clear, um, we have a passion as a church and we believe a call from God and a mandate from the Bible to be a church that's about reconciliation in our city. To specifically speak into that because that's what we believe the kingdom of God is doing and is accomplishing in the world. We have a call specifically to be a multi-ethnic church. Uh, many people who I've talked to, even speaking to one of my pastor friends last night, said there is a spirit of racism in our city. Perhaps goes all the way back to the race massacre of 1898. Who knows? This is a very common language among many pastors in our city. There's this kind of spirit of racism. There's a spirit of division that just is present in our in our city, you see this in the Bible occasionally, specifically in the, uh, in the city of Ephesus. Um, you could go back to Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20 and read about this, the kind of um, opposition, the kind of influence that had not just covered an individual or a few individuals, but was actually pervasive across a whole group of people or a whole city. They would say the same is kind of true of our city here in Wilmington. And as I began to learn as a, a new uh, church planner and pastor and began to dig into this and learn more and more about this, one specific Sunday that we would be in a series called Citizens, and this would be my first really coming forward with a clear declaration of what the gospel wants to accomplish, what God wants to accomplish through the gospel in our church, which was addressing racism that is in our city. If you're familiar with the race massacre in 1898, you will know that Hugh McRae, most people believe is one of the chief leaders in the massacre, if not the ringleader himself. He was a great philanthropist that was all over the Wilmington area back in the day. But in addition to that, he was a white supremacist. They would, he would donate various tracts of land to the city and for different purposes. Today, Hugh McRae Park that we actually have in the middle of our city was uh, donated by this man, Hugh McRae who is most likely the ringleader of the 1898 massacre. When the park was originally established, it was established specifically and written only for white people. In 2015 in this series, for the first time, working on my sermon, on that illustration, going to address this and talk about this, the next morning, Sunday morning, I remember putting my final sermon together and reading this story and putting my introduction and together wrapped it up at about 9.30 or 10 o'clock, would then go on to bed. About 2 o'clock or 3 a.m. in the morning, um, our kids just start vomiting uh, in their beds in the middle of the night. Like, this is odd. This is bizarre. They're not sick. They haven't eaten anything that we are aware of that would cause them to vomit. It, get, it gets so bad that we're trying to get in touch with a friend who's a doctor and try to figure out what we should do. I know that I've got the sermon that's coming up the next morning. How in the world am I going to show up and, and do this if this is happening, we begin to take care of our girls. Ashley actually takes one of them who's in a pretty desperate condition, begins to drive to the hospital to take our kid to the hospital in the middle of the night, finally gets in touch with a doctor who helps us, um, gives us a few pointers and tips about what to do. She doesn't have to take our child to the emergency room, ends up coming home. It's about 3 or 4 a.m. I try to go back to bed for a little bit of time, then show up on Sunday and to preach this sermon. We thought it was just like a, a random fluke, that it was kind of crazy, and then it happened about two or three other times on a Saturday night on the heels of getting ready to address racism in a sermon. 
after about the third time, we kind of picked up on it. We're like, oh, we see what's happening here. The enemy, enemy's pretty crafty. He doesn't do that anymore. Our children actually slept fine last night, by God's grace. We pray differently now when we put our kids to bed. Different kinds of prayer because we know that the enemy is against us and what we are trying to accomplish. Remember a story a couple years ago of driving down North 6th Street and seeing this man as I drove by with standing on the sidewalk looking at me with some kind of terror in his eyes. Never seen this person before, but I knew that something was terribly wrong with him. Looked specifically in his eyes with uh, taunt. He, he looks back at me and as I drive by, falls down on the ground, flipping and flopping and wailing and yelling on the sidewalk, beating his head into the ground, flopping like a fish. That's bizarre. That's kind of a crazy situation going on. What's going on there? There may be some mental or biological things going on there. It's demon possession. There's something significantly spiritual that is happening in that moment. Stories of people in our church who have um, experienced hearing um, different kinds of oppression, voices that um, they hear audibly sometimes in um, their head. Many people have shared stories with me of uh, being in their room in a home, either their own home or somebody else's home, feeling a presence of, of darkness, spiritual darkness that is in the room, a spirit of oppression. There's a story of a man one time that was actually in his bed and couldn't physically get out of bed because of a, some kind of force or pressure that was pushing him down in his bed, holding him down. Stories of others in our church from the time they were young children feeling uh, physical forces in their lives, physically um, harmed them. One, one of our uh, people in our church told me a specific story of feeling uh, a physical oppression of being suffocated, felt like they were being strangled by a snake, and this would happen multiple times in their life as a young child. They would feel paralyzed, actually not e even be able to speak and to talk. It would prevent their ability to be able to speak. Story of a college student uh, this past uh, Fall, who told me a story. She's a new believer, recently came to Christ in the last uh, couple years. Story after the hurricane uh, happened here, Hurricane Florence had to leave the city and would go to stay with a family and actually feel evil spirits in the house and in the room in which she was staying in. To the degree that she wasn't able to sleep for a number of nights, wouldn't even feel the confidence to be able to open her eyes because of what she may see or what she may feel, that there was just a dark presence that was over the house and over the room. And here's the reality. These stories are on and on and on and on and on. This is not like one person that has experienced it. These are true um, experiences and realities of a number of people, not just in our church but even outside our church, people being tormented by voices, people being tormented by dreams in the night. Significant. And I say that to just help you to understand that there's actually really significant things that are happening in, in our lives that we might excuse away as other things, but recognize there's a real war that is raging uh, in our lives. And there are significant spiritual realities that we are up against. So what should we do? I have to land the plane. What should we do? Let me give you a couple things in conclusion. I wasn't able to get through everything. Have to dig back in next week. But what should we do? I want to encourage you with this. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. A couple things here. Let's not bypass the part about submitting yourself to God. All right. We like to jump to the resist part. First of all, submit yourself to God. You're walking in submission to God, walking in obedience to God, walking in holiness, walking in what God would instruct and have for you, walking in submission to God. Walk, submit yourselves to God and resist the devil. Which means you don't have to entertain the devil. You don't have to entertain any kind of enemy or opposition. Actually, don't entertain it. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. As well, 2 Corinthians 2.11. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Be vigilant. Be vigilant against his schemes. Know what he's doing. Know what he's up to. What's happening, as Rita said this morning, or someone said this morning, that, that fight in your home or what's happening in your, your home, that battle that's in your home, there's actually a greater battle that's happening. Recognize what he's doing. Uh, recognize what we need to be addressing and what we need to be uh, fighting and how we should be fighting. And I'll conclude with this. Reese, we'll jump down to Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Here's the great truth today, you guys. The enemy is trying to destroy you, but Jesus has already destroyed him on the cross. Jesus has already won the victory. All right, he's still letting Satan play games for a little while, but he has already accomplished the victory for us. When we stand in Jesus, when we stand in the gospel, we have the power of God in our lives. We have the Holy Spirit that rules and reigns in us. We operate from his power. We're not dominated by the power of Satan. We're actually dominated by the power of God. And Jesus is even the greater destroyer who destroys the destroyer, Satan himself, through the gospel. And this is the good news of the gospel, is that you were lost in your sin that you were under the power of Satan, that you were dead in your sin, and Jesus came for you. He lived the life that you could not live. He died the death that you should have died, and he conquered the grave that you could not conquer, and then grants you victory in him, gives you the Holy Spirit, gives you the power to live in the life that he has called you to live. That's the good news of the gospel, and there's a war that is waging. All in with Psalm 91, our prayer team this morning I'll go ahead and ask the band, you guys go ahead and come up as I read this. Psalm 91. Psalm 91 says this. I'll kind of read this over us as a declaration, and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll continue. Psalm 91 says this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. He, his faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked." And because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. What a great truth. 
On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. This is God speaking. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Some of you today, I just feel like you might be wrestling with this today, walking through this. I'd encourage you to take Psalm 91 today. Take Psalm 91 this week. Read it, declare it over your soul. Let this be your anthem this week. Walk in it. Eat on it. Sit on it. Dwell on it. Think on it. Drink on it. Feast on it. Be for your good. Amen. Father, today we thank you for grace and your goodness and we thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus and we thank you that though we fight this war we we fight um, not for victory but we fight from victory Um, and so God we thank you today for your spirit that's in us and gives us the strength and the ability to overcome and so God I pray that you would uh, lead deliver empower us for the work that you would have for us specifically this week as we face significant warfare. We ask for your strength today and your power and your help because we need you. Help us to be strong in you, God, not in our own strength, but strong in you and your strength, the strength that you provide when we empty ourselves of our own strength. So God, we love you. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen.